Welcome back to Chasing Dramas. This is the podcast that discusses Chinese culture and history through historical Chinese dramas. Karen is feeling a little bit under the weather, so it'll just be me today for your host, Kathy. Today, we are discussing episodes 50 and 51 of The Story of Yanxi Palace or Yanxi Gonglue. This podcast is in English with proper nouns and certain phrases spoken in Mandarin Chinese. If you have any comments or questions, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or Twitter or else email us at Kathy at ChasingDramas.com. This podcast episode consists of a drama episode recap and then we'll move on to discuss the history portrayed in this episode. In the last episode, we saw Ying Luo falling off her horse after a riding lesson with the emperor. This resulted in both of them becoming seriously injured and the emperor wondering who caused this to happen. We start episode 50 with Ying Luo recovering in bed after her riding incident and it honestly is quite sweet to see the emperor look after her for an entire night. I don't think many women in the imperial harem can claim that honor. Hailan Cha gives the emperor a report of his investigations. Currently, there's nothing he can find, but the emperor sets a trap and Hailan Cha is able to chase a eunuch to Zhong Cui Gong, the residence of Chun Guifei. Shortly after, the emperor visits Chun Guifei and gives her a bone-chilling sermon. He essentially states out his suspicions in front of her that he thinks it was she who ultimately caused the horse to panic and caused Ying Luo's injury. Chun Guifei, to her credit, quickly swears in her life that she had nothing to do with it. I mean, if she didn't, I don't know how the emperor would have reacted. I mean, he basically didn't even believe her just then and there. So, I mean... He gives her a pretty stern warning to not act out any further before leaving. Now, do we believe that she is innocent? Well, of course not. She might not have done the deed, but it was her loyal ally Yu Fei who ordered the hit. Yu Fei pays Wei Ying Luo a visit, and at last, they have an open discussion. Honestly, I also think that this was a good discussion for us, the audience, to hear because ever since we saw Wei Yingluo back at the palace, I was also like, hey, Yufei, why are you such an ungrateful person? <laughs> Yufei became a pawn for Chun Guifei in order to survive in the palace and protect her son. In front of Wei Yingluo, she says that she has no choice but to do what she is doing. She has neither status nor power in the palace, so she only has Chun Guifei to rely on. This angers Ying Luo as she reveals to Yu Fei that it was Chun Guifei who was the one to cause the late empress's death and the death of the seventh prince. This conversation was an important one for Yu Fei to clarify her position, but also let us know that she herself is struggling. She returns to her palace where we meet her son, the fifth prince, a cute young child who is shown to be quite talented. Yu Fei instructs her son to get the favor of Ling Fei, aka Ying Luo, in order to survive in the palace. Notice how she is not requesting for 
the fifth prince Yongji to gain favor from Chun Guifei, but from Ling Fei. Next, we turn to the Empress. We haven't seen her in a while, and unfortunately, it's not good news. Her father, Nar Bu, has been apprehended for stealing relief funds for disaster victims. The emperor is furious with this news, and the empress pleads with the emperor that it would not have been possible for her father to do such a thing and begs him to retry her father's case. The emperor ultimately relents, but tries to manage her expectations that the results might not change. To get some advice, the emperor, our emperor Qianlong, goes to speak to his mother, the empress dowager Tai Ho. She makes the situation rather plain. Even though the empress's father may be innocent in corruption and stealing of disaster relief funds, it is unfortunately evident that he is plainly incompetent. An official may be loyal, but if he is incompetent, then that is almost just as bad as being a corrupt official. But then, the reality as to why the Empress Dowager insists that the Empress's father be killed is that he has to be the scapegoat for the corruption that happened this time. If he doesn't die, then the Emperor must investigate all higher levels of government to see where the funds ultimately went. This could mean upsetting the rest of the Manchu banners, the royal relatives, and the aristocracy, who, both of them, the emperor and the empress dowager, know are probably not clean in this. But if the emperor upsets these uncles or princes, or provokes them too much, this could destabilize the empire. Finally, the empress dowager coldly informs the emperor that it is precisely because the man in question is the empress's closest kin that he must be killed. This way, the world will believe that the emperor is not forgiving in the eyes of the law. At this, however, the emperor rejects the notion. He leaves stating that he has much to think about, much to the anguish of his mother. And we'll hear later on that perhaps there is a different motive as well as to why the empress dowager is pushing this death so eagerly. The next string of events happen rather rapidly. The Empress kneels in front of the Emperor's residence for an entire evening as she begs him to reconsider the death sentence for her father. When he comes out after hiding from her for basically an entire day, the Emperor finally agrees to not kill her father. She is overjoyed and requests the help of the emperor's brother, He Qin Wang, to bring her father some clothes for his journey to exile. He agrees, but once in the prison, we see that the empress's father has committed suicide. Honestly, I love these two episodes simply because we get to see Charmaine at her best. When the empress hears the news, she absolutely breaks. In front of the emperor, she asks point blank whether it was he or the Empress Dowager, who ordered her father to be killed. She knows full well that her father did not commit suicide, so someone must have done it. She is extremely upset that her father was a scapegoat and accused the Empress Dowager of protecting her own family, who are also implicated in the corruption scandal, which is why she was so eager to sentence the Empress's father. 
All of these words ultimately broached the emperor's bottom line, and he storms out. I feel like this is on like another level of um, pushing buttons because Wei Yinglo, yes, pushes the emperor's buttons, but all within like a certain limit and is more playful. Here, though, the empress is point blank asking whether or not the emperor basically lied and killed her father. And this is something that the emperor, you know, just can't let his pride down to answer. The empress is distraught and her maid, Jenner is left searching for her as she disappears in the palace. At night, the empress is found by He Xinwang, or Prince He, who had worked tirelessly to help her and her father these past few days, on a palace roof. This is the same spot where the late empress jumped off. The empress gives a crazed speech about how she must amass more power. All of this happened to her because she does not have enough power. Like I said earlier, I love these scenes acted by Charmaine Shea because she can be so nuanced. Here, she acts as a heartbroken woman. And then in the next, we see that her crazed behavior were just shows that she put on in order to garner the sympathy of the emperor and Prince He. She knows that being upset about her father's death won't help her. Instead, she had to play up the roles that would cause the emperor to remember her and essentially a debt that he owes her now. As for Prince He, this was a show so that he can continue to pity her and help her as well. Once again, she is a master of psychology and mental manipulation. It is such a pity, though, that her father was incompetent. I feel like all of the brains of the family went to our current empress. I remember the first time watching the drama or this particular episode, and I saw Charmaine's character, the empress, standing on the roof of the palace. I was also super shocked. I was like, oh my God, she's actually going to jump. But, you know, she knows what she's doing. The next scene where she is just kind of nonchalantly, not nonchalantly, but um, calmly reading the book and saying, this is how I want the emperor to remember me by. Man, I was like, wow, she knows what she's doing. I mean, at least now we see this growth of this baddie and we see the empress has been pushed further to wanting to seek power. We round out the storyline by highlighting that the emperor reveals to Yingluo later on, or more like she guesses in front of him, that the emperor had actually no intention of allowing the empress's father to live. He was going to be sent to exile, but most likely killed along the way anyways, because, of course, the route or the route to the west for exile is no easy uh, journey. Only this time, the empress dowager was one step ahead. We round out episode 51 with two key takeaways. One is that Yu Fei brings her son, the fifth prince, Yongqi, to see Ying Luo in order to build a relationship between the two. And then second is that Yuan Chun Wang has decided to come serve Ying Luo at Yanxi Palace. He is now the head eunuch at her place, and she gladly welcomes him with open arms. At the end of episode 51, Ying Luo is summoned to Yu Fei's palace. There, the entire palace is present as it looks like the fifth prince is sick and the main culprit causing the illness is... Who else? Ying Luo. 
We'll find out more about this in the next episode. Now, let's move on to the history that we see in the drama. I know that most of the two episodes were very heavy with Empress Nala, but, you know, there's some history sprinkled in for these two episodes, so let's turn our attention towards them. In episode 50, we are introduced to a very cute young boy. This is, of course, our fifth prince, Yongqi, born in 1741, and we're currently in like a murky timeline in the 1750s, so he should be somewhere between the ages of like 10 and 14. In the drama, he shows his mother, Yu Yufei, some of his writings. After taking a look, I see that they all come from the Analects of Confucius, or Luan Yu. The two lines from the Analects all come from the second book, Luan Yu, Wei Zheng, or The Practice of Government. I like the summary of it uh, from Wikipedia, so here's a description of what The Practice of Government is about. According to Confucius, political order is best gained through the non-coercive influence of moral self-cultivation rather than through force or excessive government regulation. So let's start with the first of the two lines that are written on the paper. The first line goes as such. My translation is as such. Confucius says, Governing the country with moral principles is similar to the position the North Star holds. All of the other stars will revolve around it. So this line basically lays out Confucius's belief in moral governance. If the leader practices moral governance, then the subjects or citizens will automatically follow you. Similar to how... If you're the leader, you're the North Star, and these subjects or the other stars will revolve around you. Morality in political life plays a crucial role, and moral education is needed for governing the country. So for Confucius, we see that stating the rule of virtue, not harsh punishment or strict law, is his prime principle. The next line found on the sheet is the following. This translates to, Confucius says, all of the words and meanings in the 300 chapters of the Book of Songs can be summed up in one phrase, which is pure thought. The phrase, which translates to pure thought or innocence, comes from the Book of Songs, During the time of Confucius, most of the students didn't have access to that many books or texts. The Book of Songs, or Shijing, was probably one of the more readily available and widely known books, both from a written perspective and also, of course, an oral communication perspective. If you recall, there weren't books in the sense of, you know, paper all the way back in 500 BC. Everything if lucky, was written on bamboo scrolls. So this is what I mean when I say most students didn't have access to that many books because, of course, if you're able or lucky to have certain books, they would be in scrolls, and they are kind of bulky to walk around with. So this is why, again, 
Confucius, himself a student of the Book of Song, summarized his knowledge of Shi Jing and added it to his sayings. Si Wu Xie is his best conclusion, which for him means pure thought or free from corruption. I personally am not surprised that Yongqi, or the fifth prince, is learning this, because Lun Yu is, of course, one of the standard texts that men had to learn. And for him, as a prince, this is, you know, probably pretty par for the course to learn how to govern in the future, if he was to become the next emperor. Next, we jump to episode 51, where we see a lovely music box that Wei Yingluo has somehow managed to get her hands on and dances the waltz with Mingyu and the emperor. I will just go ahead and say that this whole scene is a massive bug and here's simply for our enjoyment. According to my research, the first music box was invented by Swiss watchmaker Antoine Favre Salomon, in 1796. This guy lived from 1734 and died in 1820. Mr. Antoine, or Mr. Antoine Favre Salomon, invented a pocket watch with an embedded mechanism that played music. And this is what was recognized as the first music box. In Chinese, we call it the Ba Yin He. In the drama, like I said, we are currently in the 1750s, so it's still a good 40 years before anything resembling a music box is invented. And then, of course, that needs to take some time to travel from Europe over to China. What we see in our drama, of course, shows a definitely more advanced version of a music box, and those, of course, didn't come along until well into the 19th century. As for the waltz, at first, I was also going to say that waltzing is an anachronism and that it wasn't invented because, in my mind, I thought waltzing became much more popular in the 19th century because, of course, we have all these beautiful pieces by Strauss that are still played today during the Vienna New Year's concert. However, after a quick search, I found that I was very wrong. The waltz was invented in Germany and Austria way back in the 13th century. By the end of the 18th century, it was accepted by the high class and even the Habsburg court. The reading that I came across was quite funny because it stated that the religious leaders thought that the dance was vulgar and sinful because people had to um, touch each other and also be in close contact. If that's what the religious folk thought, I wonder if the French ministers who went to China actually knew this dance. It seems like the French did love the waltz, but I'm not sure about those who traveled to the Far East. I'm also like 90% sure that Tianlong's court didn't dance the waltz, but I do find it funny that in the drama, Emperor Tianlong in this scene was quite jealous and asked Yingluo if that's how the French ministers taught her, as in like in close quarters with hands on waists, all that. Well, this scene was just a fun little interlude and let's not think too much of it because yes, as I said, none of this would have happened uh, during this time. So lastly, let's talk about the man that caused all of the strife for these two episodes, Mr. Na'er Bu, the father of our current empress. 
We surprisingly know very little about the man, not when he was born or when he died. We do know that his family was originally from the Manchu bordered blue banner. But after the promotion of his daughter to Empress, Emperor Qianlong promoted the Huifa Nala clan to the Manchu standard yellow banner. We've talked about this before when discussing our current empress. She is of the Huifa Nala clan and there is some dispute, but as we've said for this drama, they moved on with the Huifa Nala clan as the Nala clan of record. Narbu inherited a post of the fourth rank Zuoling or officer, which means that he probably managed a regiment or just um, a group of probably 200 to 300 soldiers. According to Qing Shilu, or the factual record of Qing, it states that the father of the empress, Narbu, was posthumously granted the title of Duke of the First Rank, or Yi Gong. It says that officials were sent to pray, tombstones were also built. His wife was also given a Gao Ming title of the first rank. And this Gao Ming title is, as we mentioned in the story of Ming Lan during our discussion of episode 49, a title that is bestowed to a wife or a mother of an official um, with a high rank. Narbu's grandson, Na Su Ken, inherits a title of Marquis of the first rank. This essentially means that when Consort Xian was promoted to the title of Empress, her father and her brother had already passed. Otherwise, the title of Marquis or title of Duke would not have passed down to the Empress's nephew, but of course to either her father or her brother. Taking a step back, when the Empress first married the Emperor all the way back in the early 1730s, the information regarding Narbu already stated that he was a former Zuoling. That means that he had already retired from this role and was probably of a more senior age, like maybe over 60? When Emperor Qianlong ascended the throne and presented gifts to the Huifa Nala clan, Narbu was still alive. However, by the 13th year of Emperor Qianlong's reign, and a time when the new empress was about to be promoted to uh, empress, all gifts and titles were then bestowed upon the empress's nephew. So it's through this timeline that we can infer that her father passed some time between, of course, when the emperor ascended the throne and, of course, when the empress got promoted to her current station. We do have records that Narbu did have another daughter who was significantly older than our current empress. So it might be that our current empress, uh, Huifa Nalashi, is probably just the youngest child of Narbu. Hence why there aren't that many records of him during any of the reigns of these emperors. So as we can see with the history that I just mentioned, the drama here takes many liberties with the story of the Huifa Nala clan, especially with Narbu. He's not alive during any of these years, so there's no way that he was sentenced to uh, death or a whole discussion or debate revolved around his poor performance. 
I, however, do think that this works for the drama because it pushes the empress into action. It also highlights tensions, loyalty, and hatred amongst several people. We have the kind of guilt that the emperor feels for the empress, the hatred that the empress will now feel for the empress dowager. We will find out all about this in subsequent episodes. The loyalty between the empress and Prince He. And finally, we will see a lot of this boiling up to a conclusion between the empress and Chun Guifei. And that is it for this podcast episode. If you are looking for sites to watch dramas and you are in the US, head over to our sponsor, Jubao TV. That's J U B A O TV. It's a free service that has a selection of Chinese dramas and movies to watch, and they also just launched on Plex. Again, all of this is free. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you all in the next podcast episode. <laughs>